rest of us, I believe that we're going to begin um, a study of one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, I know that Will was being somewhat sarcastic talking about the, the boring Old Testament because he knows that once they got into Judges, man, that, just, that comes alive, right? And we're going to do the same thing with the book of Daniel. In fact, I believe you'll discover that it's amazing how relevant Daniel is for today. This book written, I actually referenced it when a couple of weeks ago when I was speaking of the wise men. And perhaps Daniel, uh, the, the scrolls of Daniel had an influence on those, uh, those magi who were seeking the star, right? That they were seeking the one to be born king of the Jews. And we'll see later in some of the prophetic passages uh, just how relevant Daniel was to the gospel itself. We'll also, I think, see how relevant it is in the day and time in which we live, kind of a modern Bible. In fact, I believe that Old Testament prophecies made clear that there would be kind of a revived Babylonian empire that would reveal itself in the Roman empire. And the prophetic literature also speaks of a revived Roman empire, a, another Babylon and in the consummation of the ages. And so as we approach the return of Christ and we're one day closer than we were yesterday, and as we approach the return of Christ, you're gonna see the world become more, more increasingly like Babylon of old. And the world in which you and I live is changing day after day after day. In fact, we'll see here in Daniel chapter 1 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there as we stand and begin to read this book, uh, we'll go through these chapters together and enjoy this study of, of Daniel. But I pray that it'll be more than uh, you going through Daniel. I pray that Daniel's message will go through you and that it will be absolutely life-changing, not only motivating, but equipping uh, for all that God has for you. And uh, Let's just let's read the first eight verses to begin with, and then we'll kind of dissect the rest of the chapter a little bit this morning as well. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem, laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him. The Lord handed, by the way. You might underline that in your Bible. Along with some of the vessels from the house of God, Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, small g there. Nebuchadnezzar worshiped the pagan gods of Babylon, and he put vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Aspenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction and all wisdom, knowledge, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judahites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Mishael, Shak to Mishael and Abednego to Azariah. Daniel, here's another one to underline, by the way. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself, that he would eat food or with the wine that he drank. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself. We see a beautiful combination in Daniel, the sovereignty of God. God is in control, complete control. And the responsibility, we all 
are made response able, able to respond, the responsibility of God's people before him. Father, we thank you for this word that has been preserved through the ages, inspired of your Holy Spirit, the true story lived out in the lives of these young men at the beginning of the story who would grow old and stay faithful. Lord, teach us to do the same as we study this book together in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Daniel, uh, subtitle of the series, Steadfast in the Chaos. Steadfast in the Chaos. Chaos would describe Babylon. Chaos often describes the world in which we live today. Well, it's the first day of a new year, so I think this new chapter in a new book that finds these Hebrew children in a new world, we'll just call this message this morning uh, as we begin that it's a new day in a different world. A new day in a different world. By the way, does anybody feel like that in the world in which we live today? That, man, it's a different world. It's a different world than you grew up in, than I grew up in. It's a different world. Now, listen, I know some of the young people are like, man, I get tired of old people saying things aren't like they used to be. And I get that. And I get that in some ways, or in a number of ways, things have probably been even made better. But I'm telling you, philosophically, religiously, spiritually, it's a different world. It is becoming increasingly more and more like Babylon. And so many times in the church, we start acting like the people of the world. We start acting like that it's all just some big accident. I remember those uh, famous words by the theologian Kenny Rogers. You know who I'm talking about? You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. Your only hope, really, is that somewhere in the darkness, you're going to find an ace that you can keep. The gambler, right? What's the deal with this idea of gambling? It's that you're not in charge of the hand you were dealt. You just got to figure out with the best human skill you can possibly come up with how to, how to handle, how to play the cards you've been dealt. No concept of the sovereignty of God who is the ultimate dealer, right? He's the one who deals us the hand. You say, wait a minute, I know the devil has thrown some things at me. Remember when the devil had to ask God permission for what he allowed to happen in the life of Job? I, listen, I know God is not the source of temptation and evil. God cannot be tempted by evil, James says, nor does he tempt anyone. But nothing can come against us without God's permission because God is a sovereign God and he allows certain things to happen. He allowed it to happen in the life of Judah and Israel and he will allow it to happen in the day and time in which we live in a sin-fallen world. But life, it does not just boil down to a game of chance that we've got to come up with our human skills and luck and be able to bluff and fake it till you make it. It's more than that. And so I pray that you'll change your perspective in 2022 that you'll have a change of perspective because you'll understand something new as we study the book of Daniel about the sovereignty of God, that God is the one who deals the cards, that God is the one who gives us his spirit and his word to guide us in how we're to play the hand that we've been dealt in the time in which we live. And the objective is not that you and I just become winners in the world's eyes. The objective is that whatever happens, that God would be glorified in your life and in my life, that the victory would be found in your relationship with Jesus Christ as you know him and as you make him known in the world. Daniel didn't choose the hand he was dealt. Chaos, right? Catastrophe. The collapse of a nation around him. 
a nation that was supposed to be one nation under God, right? That had collapsed around him. Daniel had witnessed all of that. And he wakes up, it's a new day, Daniel chapter 1, in a different world. Now, as we kind of outline the rest of this book in the days ahead, you'll see Daniel chapters 2 through 7, which interestingly uh, were recorded in Aramaic rather than in the Hebrew language, one of those few sections in the Old Testament that, that was written in Aramaic. It shouldn't surprise us. You shouldn't listen to the the, uh, the liberal scholars who would say, oh, that's because those aren't Daniel's words or somebody else's. No, think about it. Daniel was being schooled in the language of this Eastern Babylonian empire. And when he's writing about the future of all nations, he puts it, it seems, in their language. But in Daniel chapter 2, 3, and 4, you have this mirror of Daniel 5, 6, and 7. It's interesting. You uh, Daniel chapter 2, you have Nebuchadnezzar's dream. and Daniel chapter 7, you have Daniel's dream about God saying, here's how it's all going to unfold in the days ahead. And Daniel chapter 3, you have the lion's den. And Daniel chapter, uh, excuse me, Daniel chapter 3, you have the fiery furnace. Daniel chapter 6, you have the lion's den. Kind of a mirror, Daniel kind of going through a little bit of what his three friends had gone through. And then in chapters 4 and 5, you have uh, God humbling, if not even humiliating, the kings of the day. And so we'll see what happens in the life of these two different kings and see that God truly is sovereign and does what he says he'll do. And we'll see a little glimpse of that even in Daniel chapter 1. Then in chapters 8 through 12, you have Israel's future and God's plan for the earthly kingdoms that will all pass away. You have only a parenthetical reference to the church age, but don't think for a moment. Don't do like one preacher has recommended. Don't unhitch yourself from the Old Testament here. Don't think for a moment that Daniel is not relevant. Remember, always remember when you're in the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, where Paul says, look, these things have been recorded to be examples for you because even the church in the Roman Empire, Paul understood, lived in the Babylon of that day, and the church would always, to some degree, have to learn how to be in the world and not of it, to live in Babylon. And so ignore those anti-supernatural critics who believe that Daniel couldn't have written Daniel because his prophecies were too accurate. It would have taken a a, a miracle. Well, I, I believe that's what Daniel is. It's a miraculous, inspired, inerrant book given to us to teach us by example to learn how to live in the chaos, steadfast in the chaos. A little bit of history of Israel and Judah. You know the story of how the kingdom became a divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of ten tribes, basically ten and a half, but the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. The prophets were warning both because in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they had God's laws They had God's standards. They had an awareness of God. They had had an understanding of God's presence, but they were not authentic in their faith. They were not living by the word that they had, the revelation that they had. They had given themselves over to vain ritualism. Remember, they were saying things according to Jeremiah chapter 7, things like, we have the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord. In other words, we go to church. We've got God on our side, and they made the mistake of thinking as long as we intellectually believe the right things and we 
say the right things. It doesn't matter how we live. We can live any way we want to live. God's on our side. And they were being warned by the prophets. People like Isaiah, Jeremiah, when we refer to the minor prophets, remember they weren't minor because they had a lesser role. It's just their books were shorter. But the prophets were warning them again and again and again to get right, to come back to God, to, to, to live out his laws, his principles, his precepts in life. And they continued to live in rebellion. And God said, listen, enough's enough. 722, the northern king of Israel fell to the Assyrians. And so then the prophets were saying to the southern king of Judah, what happened to them is going to happen to you. If you don't repent, if you don't draw back close to God, God is going to use, he even prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar would be used to bring judgment. And so Babylon would then come in and bring destruction in the southern kingdom. There were three deportations of Jews from Judah to Babylon. Daniel and his three friends were part of that first deportation, 605 B.C. Another one would take place in 597, then again in 586. But from 605 roughly to 535, there would be 70 years of captivity that had been prophesied already in the Scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 25 talked about the 70-year exile that was going to take place. And we would see that conclude with the returns of Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls and the city and, and all those wonderful passages about revival. I love Nehemiah chapter 8 and the revival that's happening there at the Watergate. But there would be this long period of exile in Babylon for these members of the southern kingdom. But be careful in the day and time in which we live not to be so upset at the collapse of a political environment, a political culture, a secular culture, that the collapse of the kingdoms of this world, even if it's the nation in which we live, that you forget that you don't cease to exist as the people of God. People that God called Peter's words a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. That even if you are existing in Babylon, you still exist as the people of God and as members of his kingdom to shine a light. Israel was to be a light to all the nations. They had ceased to be that light. Now the church is called to be the light of the world. And when we cease to be that light, we also experience the disciplinary hand of God. So be careful that when it's a new day in a different world, you don't just give up hope, but that instead you understand that you're called to keep on trucking like Daniel and his three friends, living for the Lord in a different world, being steadfast in the chaos. So this morning, I want to challenge you in 2022, let's begin this year by making some observations and committing ourselves, recommitting if the need is in your life, ourselves to say, we're going to be steadfast in the chaos. Number one, here's the first observation, the discipline of God to redeem people for his kingdom purposes. The discipline of God. Why does God bring about discipline in this world? Why does he bring about judgment in this world? It's always for redemptive purposes. God is not one who sits in heaven and says, I can't wait for this world to mess up so I can just crush them. Now, he is a consuming fire, and his holiness is something that would, if it weren't for the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of his spirit in our lives, his holiness could consume us and annihilate us. 
But when you read these first seven verses, you realize something, as we saw a moment ago, that God was the one handing them over. Verse 2, the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to who? To Nebuchadnezzar, along with these vessels from the house of God. This thing that was happening that would desecrate Jerusalem was something that God was allowing to happen for his purposes, his redemptive purposes. So here's the king ordering, verse 3, the chief of the eunuchs, Asphanaz, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and, and from nobility. We know that from 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 18, these are Hezekiah's descendants because it was prophesied that Hezekiah's, by Isaiah, that Hezekiah's descendants would be brought into this Babylonian kingdom. Young men without physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction, and all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, capable. And yet, in all of this, they would remain the people of God. Why was God allowing this to happen? And so the king assigns them these provisions, so there's certain things that are happening that, that God's allowing to happen. There are certain things that are happening that God's testing his own people. When we read these verses, we read the Old Testament prophets, we understand something, and that is that when God judges a people, even those who were trying to live right are impacted by that judgment. It impacts all around. And listen, for Israel and for Judah, I want you to know something. The power of positive thinking and, and, and naming and claiming God was not enough to substitute for righteous living. It just wasn't. The fact that they, they were saying, oh, we, we love the Lord. We've got God on our side. And listen, there are a lot of people that are far from God in the United States of America today that think that because we have in God we trust on our money, because we said the Pledge of Allegiance, because we go to church, which, by the way, are much fewer in America are committed to the local church today. Somehow we're above the judgment of God. God's judgment impacts the righteous with the unrighteous. Matthew 45, uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45 says that God causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, and he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, when God is bringing judgment on a people group, there are those who might be living right, but because of the world's condition, they're experiencing the judgment of God. And then sometimes God's bringing in blessings on his people who are walking with him, and the people around it get in on some of the blessings of God because of the people of God, not because they're living right. But know this, discipline always has a redemptive purpose, and it's often a twofold redemptive purpose, as we're going to see in Daniel. Why was this happening even to the good people of Judah? A couple of, a couple of things. When I talk about the twofold purpose, redemptive purposes of God, number one, God's allowing this to happen to Israel and Judah so that the consequences of their sin will be felt and it will bring them to a place of repentance. We call that tough love. You read about it in the book of Hebrews as well where a father chastens those he loves. God will allow discipline into your life just like a parent disciplines their children so that we will live right and draw close to him so that we will say, listen, there are times that a child will obey, 
because of their love for their parents, right? But there are other times a child will obey because of fear of the wrath of the parents, <laughs> the disciplinary hand. And so when love ceases to serve as enough motivation, hey, I, I want to do what my parents want because I love them, then the fear of the disciplinary hand causes us to say, well, I don't want to do that because I know what the consequences are going to be. And so what is God allowing to happen here? He's allowing Judah and Israel to suffer under this captivity so that he'll get their attention and he'll wake them up and draw them back to himself. It's always a redemptive purpose. But not only that, God wants to draw those people who are far from him who have never known him to himself. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. Judah was supposed to, from Jerusalem, shine a light to the world. And so Jeremiah chapter 7, when he's rebuking them for their vain ritualism, he's also rebuking them for not reaching out to those of other nations and loving them and winning them. And so what's going to happen with this persecution, much like what happened with the diaspora in the first century with the church, the Christians and Jews being scattered by persecution all over the place, they end up strategically in places where they can shine a light for the Lord. And so the redemptive purpose is not only to draw his people back to himself, but to get his people into places where they're drawing other people back to him or to him for the first time. Now, I'm not always good at that, right? What I mean, I, I did my best, right? And then poor Kent, our oldest, he had to kind of be the guinea pig to learn, you know, teach us what is this discipline thing all about? And I tried to be redemptive and, you know, discipline my child in such a way that it would serve as an example. And sometimes I just feel like I failed. It, it, the story would go something like this. We'd, we'd be at church maybe Wednesday night, talk about steadfast in the chaos. Wednesday night, we'd be here and the kids are all running around and I'd see Kent with maybe a group of 10 or 12 other boys, they're all misbehaving or something. And I would think, okay, if I get onto Kent loud enough, for the other parents to see me getting onto my son, maybe they'll get onto their kids as well. And I'd say, Kent, man, you need to stop that. That will not be tolerated. Cut that out and all that. And like, okay, did the other parents get the message? They get the hint. And then the other parents would be like, uh, boy, Kent sure is bad. He's getting in trouble all the time. Like, well, that didn't work too well. Kent, sorry, bud. Or I'd be coaching t-ball, you know, and how one of the hardest things in the world to do is to be a bench coach in t-ball. So I put Tina in charge of that. Uh, but, but you're coaching T-ball and all the kids are getting whiny and fussy and all that. And I'm like, okay, if I get on to Kent loud and clear in front of all the other kids and parents, then maybe the other parents will straighten their kids out, especially those who are being really bad. And so, Kent, no, 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 son, that's not going to be tolerated. You can't be doing that. Get, get back get where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing and all that. And the other parents look around. Did they get the hint? Did they get the message? And they'd be like... Boy, that Kent, man, he's a bad kid. He's getting in trouble all the time. I'm like, man, I'm just, I'm not doing a good job of trying to discipline my kid. And so I had to go back and apologize at times. Kent, I should have handled that in private, should have handled it in public. My strategy didn't work anyway. Um, people didn't get the message. And, and so God knows he's the perfect parent. He knows how to discipline in private. He knows how to discipline in public. He knows how to make an example out of us and knows how to get the attention of the other kids that need to come to him. And so he does that in the life of Israel, in the life of Judah. And even the righteous, even the good kids, right? Even the good kids are being put in a bad situation to show that, hey, here's how godly people respond. These teenagers making a difference in their world as we work our way through this wonderful book. 
Second observation, I want you to see the determination of God's people, at least some of God's people, right? To remain pure in a godless culture. To remain pure in a godless culture. Something's trying to be forced on them. You go back to verse 6 and see these name changes here. You have Daniel being called Belteshazzar. All of a sudden, this one who, whose name meant God is my judge, all of a sudden is having to have a name that reflects Baal as king, czar. You have Shadrach, whose name, or Hananiah, a name loved by God, now being called Shadrach, which has to do with the moon god, Rock, the also, you see that in Mishael, or his name called Meshach, Mishael, who is God. Now, is, who is Shach or who is Aku, if you will? Azariah, God is my help to servant of Nego, Abed, the Hebrew for servant. Being called the servant of Nego, the God of fertility and agriculture and things. Their names were all being forced on them, these new names, but they didn't forget who they were. Look at Daniel in verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself. The determination of God's people to remain pure in a godless culture is something that escapes us today. He would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, so he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. And God granted Daniel kindness and compassion. He gave him the art of diplomacy, if you will, a winsome spirit. And this chief eunuch said to Daniel, and by the way, if the chief eunuch was in charge, it's possible, scholars debate this, it's possible that Daniel and his three friends were also forced into being eunuchs, forced physically to be something that they didn't want to be. And yet they still were showing Respect to the one who was making these things happen. Yet they also determined that they wouldn't defile themselves. And so this chief eunuch says, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your face is looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. You're going to get me into trouble if you don't do what I'm saying. Help me out here, Daniel. Come on. Daniel was determined not to defile himself. We've lost... In the church, in the 21st century, the conviction and determination to not embrace the standards of the culture. We, we start as the church with our, the, the principles that we live by to rationalize those principles so we can live like the world as not to offend the world. We've accepted the world's sexual standards for marriage, dating, relationships, gender identity, you name it, it's crept into the church and over the half of the churches in America today will not say God's word is the final authority on such issues. We're not determined to remain pure in areas of our language, entertainment, our casual attitudes towards strong drink and things like that. In fact, in the day and time in which we live in the church today in America, a preacher can become a heavy drinker. 
He can leave his wife for a younger woman. He can deny the authority of scriptures. And if he has enough charisma, he can start a new church without repentance, without accountability, without adequate restoration. He can start a new church and draw a big crowd because they're saying, we like that preacher. He lives just like the people in the world. And so it gives us permission to also be like the world. That's the day and age in which we live. Now, on the other hand, being steadfast in Babylon isn't a self-righteous Phariseeism that doesn't see grace, right? And doesn't communicate grace. There is a graciousness that we are to live with while we're in Babylon. And so the revived Babylon that became Rome, the Roman Empire, remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 12? In verse 18, he would say, listen, as much as depends on you, you need to learn how to get along with all people. As much as you possibly can among these people and these, even at that time, government entities and rulers of that day, in the next chapter, he would say, you need to learn how to show respect to those authorities that hate you and hate the church, by the way. You need to know how to show respect. See, the church has forgotten how to, we get so caught up in political games today that we don't show that we can be winsome and loving. Now, we don't sacrifice truth. Daniel didn't sacrifice truth. He said, we're going to remain pure, but as much as depends on us, we're going to do this in a peaceable way and in a winsome way. And so Daniel would show great humility. He would show tact. He would show diplomacy. He would show that he cared for the ones who were pushing this agenda. Do the people who are trying to push a godless agenda on you know that you care about them? That you despise their agenda, but that you care about them personally. So Daniel, verse 11, said to the guard, whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He's being wise here. Wise beyond his years, right? He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men. When it says young men, we're probably talking 14, 15, 16-year-olds here. Healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now we understand, according to the New Testament, that there are certain Old Testament dietary laws that were fulfilled that served their purpose. But we also need to learn from their example, from the principle here, how to speak the truth in love, and as Peter would say, give a reason for the hope that is within us to demonstrate something. So you see this determination to remain pure no matter what because as we move on through the book of Daniel, we're going to see that Daniel's influence and the influence of his friends was only to the extent that they were li living in a way that they would keep themselves from being defiled by the culture. You can be in the world, not of the world, and we are to be in the world. Romans chapter 12, I mentioned that we're to live peaceably as much as it depends on us. Go back to the first two verses. He says, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable unto God. This is your reasonable act of service. In other words, Peter, excuse me, Paul was saying to the church at Rome, he was saying, listen, because Jesus Christ went to a cross, he died for you, his blood has covered your sins. He's now sent his spirit to live inside of you. Go back to Romans 8, the righteous requirements of the law are now fulfilled in us who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. He sent his spirit to live inside of you on all of the mercy that God has shown you now as your reasonable act of worship, your response to him, the one who has made you response able, the sovereign God, now you make a choice to say, I'm going to give my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. Lord, all that I am, all that I got, Lord, I'm going to live for you, even when it means deny myself of the worldly things. In fact, he will go on to say the next verse, right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Well, Paul, how do I do that? How can I be transformed? He says, by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our mind? Remember Jesus praying for us? God, that you would sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So that the spirit of God and the word of God, we call this illumination, enablement, that we begin to get in God's word on a daily basis and we get saturated with the word of God and the spirit of God takes the word of God and shows us the principles and the precepts by which we are to live and they become something on the inside of us. How can a young man keep his way pure? The psalmist asked. How can a young man keep his way pure? When David asked that question, he then answered it himself, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. That We meditate on the word of God. We study the word of God. That's why we study a book like Daniel to say, God, how do I do this? How do I keep myself pure? We saturate ourselves with the word of God and the will of God, the precepts and the purposes and principles and plans of God and say, I'm going to do things God's way. So we've got to learn to determine not to defile ourselves. A couple of Bible college students about a century ago were walking through a town. and One was rationalizing away his faith, deciding that he could live in sin just like anybody else. It was no big deal. As long as you believe, right, it didn't really matter how you act. The other one, knowing that they were supposed to be called into ministry, couldn't buy the lie. And he said, no, 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 we've got to live holy. We've got to live clean before God. And they walked by a clothing store. And there was a sign for used clothing that had been returned to be resold that said this, slightly sold, greatly reduced in price. Slightly sold, greatly reduced in price. And it was like a light bulb came on. He says, don't you see when we begin to rationalize and think we can engage in the impure behaviors of this culture that we greatly reduce our value for the kingdom of God. The discipline of God is to redeem his people. The determination of God's people is to remain pure. Even in a godless culture, we're to be in it, but not of it, but we're to be in it on mission. And when we ask for the wisdom of God and the grace of God, we begin, thirdly, this morning, to display the display of God's power to reveal proof that his way is best. So many times we were just on the edge of being winsome and able to win somebody, but we didn't display God's power in a way that would reveal proof that his way is best. Many of us lose the power of our witness because we don't exercise the faith that God's way is better than ours. Fear sometimes wins out. These were teenage 
Boys, sometimes fear wins out among teenagers. Young men, listen to me. Fear often wins out because the devil's going to tell you, you're missing out on something. If you don't embrace the sexual standards, the partying standards, if you don't embrace all that, you're missing out on something. And if you buy the lie, you will become enslaved to something that will destroy your life. Daniel and his friends didn't buy the lie. Verse 17, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. By the way, it was part of the mission strategy. They were now placed in a new culture that needed to know God, and they are going to become like the sons of Issachar, wise in the things and understanding of the philosophies of the world. Not that they would embrace them, but they would know how to refute them with the word of God. Daniel understood visions and dreams, and at the end of the time that the king had said to present them to the chief eunuch, he presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Wait a minute. Nebuchadnezzar, remember who we said he was an instrument of God from the very beginning, that God would be the one who gave them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king of Babylon. Jeremiah said it would happen, Jeremiah chapter 7, 27 and verse 5, by my great strength and outstretched arm, I made the earth and the people, the animals on the face of the earth. In other words, God was saying through Jeremiah, I own it all. I created it all. Those who know me, those who don't know me. What does Psalm 24 say? The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the inhabitants and all who dwell in it. Not everybody knows God as father, but everybody does know God as owner. He created it all. He owns it all. And he says, I give it to anyone I please. Verse 6, Jeremiah 27, so now I have placed all these lands under the authority of my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. In other words, it was God's will that an evil king be ruling God's people. Silence is awkward. That was God's will for that day, was that an evil king be ruling God's people to get the attention of not only God's people, but of the world. Proverbs 21, 1, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. Nebuchadnezzar would eventually lose his mind, wouldn't he? God made that happen. Verses 19 through 21 conclude, the king interviewed them. And among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king, and every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the mediums in the entire culture. I'm telling you, young people and adults, all of us, every age, we need to remember this. When you do things God's way, God will prove to you, and he will prove to the people around you that his way is best. Their test may have applied specifically to Old Testament dietary laws. At this time, it was going to apply to all types of things in the days ahead. And I know in the New Testament, Paul talked about how to go about the whole thing of eating meat, sacrificed to idols, and not asking and not worrying about certain things. I know Jesus told Peter in a vision, arise, kill, and eat. Thank God we can have barbecue today. John chapter 4, Jesus had done without food. Remember when the disciples went to town to find something to eat? He leads this woman at the well, 
to faith in himself. They said, what, what have you had to eat? He said, my food, my drinks to do the will of the one who sent me. I'm doing the will of God. And so that means we get into the word of God and we show this world the power of God that's revealed that God's way is best. That's why I preach to young people when it comes to courtship, dating, marriage, do things God's way in your life and marriage can be a testimony that God's way is best. You own a business, do business God's way. Spend a lot of time in the Proverbs asking God for wisdom and you will be proof that God's way is best. Unfortunately, and I opened up by quoting that theologian, Kenny Rogers, right? Another theologian, well, maybe not so much theologian. By the way, I love Frank Sinatra's music and was probably singing New York, New York, like the rest of you. But one of his songs that he became most, I guess one of his more famous songs is one that reflects the humanistic thinking of this culture like no other song I've ever heard. And yet we'll sing it along, subconsciously we'll embrace its message. Not picking on Sinatra here. Yeah, well, maybe I am. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I, hear all the I, I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more, I did it. I did it my way. That's just an example of the humanistic worldly thinking that we've embraced in the culture today. My way, I want it my way. Burger King, I worked there when this was their slogan, have it your way, right? But he goes on to say in that song, man, what has he got? If not himself, not. Or as we say in the South, naught. What has he got? If not himself, there's nothing else. It's what humanism teaches. What does scripture teach? We were created for God and his glory. And we were created to travel the sod on which we've been placed hand in hand with the God of this universe. And we do that through a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding the scriptures say it's not my ways. It's what Pastor Jeff opened up the service with, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My ways are higher than your ways, declares the Lord. So are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts higher than your ways and your thoughts. And this morning, I'm challenging you to begin 2022 saying, I'm going to do it God's way, not my way. I'm going to live for the Lord Jesus Christ like never before. I'm going to take Jesus by the hand today. I'm going to draw close to him. Even if the nation I live in is under the judgment of God, the world I live in is under the judgment of God, even if we're closer and closer to that final revival of Babylon, I'm going to remain pure and undefiled in the culture in which I live. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father by my You don't get right on your own terms. You come to him on his terms through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted him, right where you sit this morning, with no one looking around, I pray that you would say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sin. I believe you rose again to give me life. 
best way I know how. I'm trusting in you today for my salvation. I'm turning from sin and self. I'm believing on you. Not just with an intellectual consent, but completely surrendering my life to you. If that's the prayer of your heart, that's your desire. With no one looking around, you say, Pastor Robbie, I'm praying that right now. Would you just lift a hand and say, pray for me today? Anybody at all? That's where I'm at. Father, we thank you for the example of Daniel and his friends. Lord, I pray that as a church family, as individual families, individual Christians and Christ followers today, that we would begin 2022 saying we're going to do things God's way this year. Let the chips fall where they may. Let God be true and every man a liar. I'm going to take Jesus by the hand. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing a song of invitation. I just pray that all over this place, many of you will come to this altar this morning and say, I'm giving, I'm consecrating 2022 to the Lord Jesus Christ to do things God's way. Teenagers, young people, many of you got to listen. Some of you that went, went to Winter Extreme, as soon as you get back, the devil's going to try to throw cold water on your fire. Don't let him do it. Come and pray this morning, Lord, I'm giving it all to you. All adults, sometimes we're the one who throws the cold water on the fire, right? Let's recommit ourselves to say, we're going to do things God's way no matter what. You come this morning as we sing. Pastor Zach, you be available. I'll be available. If we can pray with you about anything, you come.